Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad. I have a very fascinating episode for you today. We're talking about mental health and depression with author Sarah Zabel, who is also a major general in the Air Force. She retired in 2018 and decided to turn her focus to a lifelong love of learning and write a science book about depression. We talk about why she decided to make that change and write this book, what she's learned from understanding the physical component of depression, and how you can help your mental health, how you can keep it in check. And if you know somebody or if you're feeling depressive or suicidal, what are the, the warning signs and when, when you should seek help and what that help might look like. So I hope you find this episode very educational, inspirational. I'll also leave a link to Fighting Chance, which is uh, General Sarah's book, down in the description of the show notes so you can check it out to sort of demystify what has long been thought of as just sort of a, a cloud over somebody's head. There are actual physical changes going on. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with General Sarah Zabel. Thank you again for, for joining the podcast. Um, I know that we just left, I guess, the mental health month. I think May is mental health month. Yes. Um, and we've also just are still in this pandemic. So I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, it seems like mental health is becoming so much more of a, of a topic. People are talking about it more. I think a lot of people are going through a lot more things because it's been such a difficult year. Um, yes. But, um, so, but I, I guess taking a step back and, and going to your background, your path to writing this book seems a, a bit unusual. Uh, so maybe you can give us a little bit about your background, your military background, and, and how you came to, you know, writing a book about depression and the science behind depression. Yes. Okay. Well, I went to the, I graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy. And of course, when you graduate, you're, um, you go into, you get commissioned into the, usually the Air Force, you can get into other services. So in a way, I chose to join the Air Force back when I was 17. And, you know, 17 year olds make decisions for all sorts of reasons. But uh, for me, I was choosing a college. Um, so I had a, a wonderful career. I really enjoyed it. After I graduated uh, back in 1987, I had 31 years, just over 31 years in the Air Force, uh, mostly in communications and computers and then cybersecurity. Is that kind of, you know, is that really rose up? And wonderful time. But when I retired in 2018, I, I wanted to have a chance to do something different. Um, because it had been a very, my entire adult life and two thirds of my life had been spent in the Air Force. Uh, what I did was I looked at, so I ha have a friend and she's featured in the book and we were lieutenants together. We had a wonderful, you know, young lieutenant life. And uh, after I had known her for about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, she had a major depressive episode. And this, happy, gregarious, normal, very outgoing person became closed in. She became suicidal. She uh, attempted suicide several times. She was became timid and just always so unhappy. And I watched her go through different treatments. Uh, I mean, there were some that were had seemed to be slightly effective, uh, but nothing was fully effective. And I watched this for like basically the last 10 years of my career. And uh, 
so when I retired, I, I was always afraid that something that I would do or say something that would, uh, frankly, make her kill herself. And I really wanted to understand what was going on. So when I retired, I, uh, I just sat down, I, I opened a bunch of huge, first of all, textbooks just to get started on, you know, neuroscience and, and molecular biology and all, all sorts of these foundational sub subjects that I needed to know. But I used basically my time and my freedom to understand what was going on. Um, I talked to, of course, to, to her, to several, many other people who were suffering from depression, also to a lot of academics and, uh, and physicians to learn about what is, what is depression, what, what's going on, and you know, what, what can I do to help, at least not to harm, and uh, is there a chance that she's going to find a cure? So it was a departure in subjects. It was a, I guess, a question that it had been eaten away at me for like the last decade of my career. And with the free time I had, I decided I just need to plunge into this. I ended up writing a book about the science of depression. Turns out that's the way my brain apparently works. Um, I thought I was just writing a book about, you know, depression in general, but as my early readers looked at it, that's, you're writing about the science of depression. Normal people don't think like this. So you're, it's about the science of depression. Um, so that's basically where I came from. Now I did have a, a wonderful lengthy career um, <laughs> in the Air Force. It was great, but I really loved digging in and trying to understand and then tell people what's going on with this. It's a terrible, it's a terrible illness, um, just awful. Uh, but it's, and it's very prevalent. Um, if you look around, you hear more and more people talking about they have depression or, you know, they're affected it by it in this way. And it's actually, it's always been there. Uh, there it's been a very prevalent Ill, illness for a very long time, but now it does seem to be growing and it seems that people are more willing to talk about it. Yeah. And it, what always strikes me interesting about mental health is if you have other physical, I, I mean, it is physical, I would say, but you know, there are yes. diseases, you can get a blood test. But when we talk about like neurotransmitters and, and all these things, you can't, right? I mean, you can't check someone's dopamine level. Right. You know, with, it, there's no test for that. Is that is that true? Well, so it, you're right, is that it is a very, there's a very physical thing going on in someone's brain when they are uh, going through depression. Um, it, basically, they're, they're losing um, some of the, the, the connections between neurons, between brain cells, they're losing some of those, and there's a certain type of cell that's, that's just disappearing. It's uh, like some of the glial cells. Um, so it's very definite physical changes, and they can see it when they do uh, sometimes some sort of uh, like functional magnetic resonance um, functional MRI, you know, functional uh, imaging of, of the brain. But, you know, we're not going to have corner functional imaging kiosks that people can just pop in and, 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 you know, get their brain checked. So in some ways they can see it, but it's not in a way that's available or accessible to, to people. And how does one know, I mean, I guess, you know, how does one know someone's depressed? How, how do you differentiate that between just having you know, a bad day, or maybe you didn't sleep well or something like that. Yeah, it looks like the medical references, they do, they look for a collection of symptoms and they look for them to have gone on for like a, a, at least two weeks, um, just about every day for at least two weeks. And they include, of course, either depression or loss of pleasure and stuff. Like if there's stuff that you used to enjoy, you just don't enjoy it anymore. But there's also these, uh, these uh, physical somatic symptoms um, that really kind of 
point the way to the fact that, yes, there is something physically changing. So those include like people have trouble sleeping. They either can't go to sleep or they sleep too much. They either can't eat or they eat too much. Um, one of the things my friend Carolyn had was uh, this, they call it psychomotor retardation. It's just like things are slowing down. So her voice, her, her speech patterns actually changed when she was in a depressive episode. So there's these, so about two weeks of that either sad, depressed mood, or, um, and uh, these, uh, some number of these other symptoms that are, that are adding up. But if somebody's wondering, I mean, if someone's even just feeling down for a couple of days, no reason why they shouldn't talk to somebody, you know, talk to a counselor, to a clergyman or, or our medical provider and just see if there's something going on. So at the baseline, I suppose, feeling down for a long period of time is not normal. Is, is this, is this correct? <laughs> I mean, I, it yes. sounds like a silly question, but <laughs> no, no, it's, it's correct. Um, right. Uh, people normally have different moods, different, you know, not wildly swinging moods, but uh, just different moods during the different days or different, uh, you know, time of day or, you know, so if you feel down for a long period of time, yeah, there's probably something going on. It's probably a, the physical change happening in your brain. It's not like, it's not like someone's just, you know, hey, just cheer up. Just don't do that. Just, you know, you're, you're weak. Just be happy. Um, it, it's not like that. There's a physical change going on and it's, uh, it, it could lead to major depressive disorder. It could lead to uh, this other uh, kind of like lower level, but chronic uh, dysthemia where you're just unhappy all the time for, you know, for years sometimes. Um, so, right, it's not, it's not the normal human experience to be unhappy all the time. So... That's interesting because I think a lot of people may feel like, oh, I, you know, my job stresses me out, so I'm just down all the time, or, or whatever it happens to be. So, I, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that maybe that's a warning sign that that something is wrong. And do the, you know, this is a big question, but do the brain changes cause the depression, or do the factors that cause the depression cause the brain cha changes? I, with all of the reading I did, I came to the conclusion that the, the scientific community is not ready to answer that question. Um, and I think it's a sort of thing, maybe it's a spiral that builds on each other. You talked about being stressed from a job and what they found is that chronic stress over a long period of time, that creates some of these, uh, these abrasive factors in your brain that, that kind of eat away those connections. So chronic stress, creates some of the conditions that that eat away at your brain. Now, normally your brain uh, adapts, it heals, you, you actually grow new brain cells, um, you know, at a pretty low rate, but you grow new brain cells. So in depressed people though, they've got that, those abrasive factors uh, that are eating things away and the adaptation functions are not working. So it's like the, the new brain cells are not being created the the connections that are eaten away they're not being you know they're not building new connections so it seems it's like a double whammy it's like there's this stress this abrasiveness kind of you know taking away what you have but then there's also the lack of the renewal and growth that you're supposed to have so yeah i don't know does one is it just like two unhappy circumstances that come together or does one create the other 
I, I like I said, I kind of think it's probably a spiral where they they feed on each other if they have enough time. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I imagine. I mean, I look at it from an evolutionary point of view. I imagine our ancestors were probably stressed out periodically. You know, they, they were probably lion chasing you versus yes. starving. Yes. But that probably, but you know, that brings up an interesting thing. Is you know that probably didn't last their entire experience, but also at the same time. You know, if you're in that situation, wouldn't being depressed sort of be counterintuitive? Wouldn't you be more energetic when you're stressed out, or, or when you're? I mean, I guess I'm confusing and, stress and depression, but no. Well, and what you're you're talking about two different things. You're talking about acute stress and then chronic stress. Acute stress is exactly what you're talking about. A lion is chasing you. You you your body is filled with adrenaline. You're focused. You are running. Um, you know that's. And then you, um, I guess, outrun the lion or whatever happens, <laughs> and uh, you your body returns to normal. It has the mechanisms inside where it'll return to normal, and all of those you know uh, those factors that are running around in your blood they 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 go down. In chronic stress, the return to normal is not happening. It's like you're at this low level of stress. You've got you know these other these factors running around in your blood in your brain, and the mechanisms that are supposed to be the, the, the feedback to say, okay, now we're done. <laughs> you can just calm down. That's not happening. And yeah, um, the caveman, you know, putting Fred Flintstone aside, he had a, he had a job and a family and, you know, all that, that stress, stressful stuff. Um, but yeah, they, they presumably experienced acute stress and boop, run away. And then, and it was healthy. It, it kept them alive so they could, you know, procreate and here we are. Um, but the chronic stress, which is, kind of part of our uh, normal modern world, that's something that, you know, maybe we, uh, we were not well adapted for. And I guess in write, writing this book, I mean, it, it, is there something we can say, yeah, that's why so many more people are at least reporting or, or feeling down? Is it, can we say, is it, you know, I don't know, watching TV or driving a car, you know, the kind of the modern things that our ancestors didn't really have? Well, um, I, I don't know. I, I think that we're going to look back at this pandemic year and we're going to see a predictable rise in, um, in mental issues like, like depression. Um, because so there are certain things that keep our brain healthy and growing, and they include exercise, uh, social interactions, you know, what they call with, with the mice, they call it what um, environmental exploration, just, you know, getting out and doing and seeing new things, which of course we've all been deprived of that for the last year. And then uh, put on the chronic stress of everybody worried about their health, their loved ones, um, their jobs, their future, just, and wondering, you know, when is this all gonna end and <laughs> childcare, elder care, all this stuff. So more chronic stress and less of the stuff that keeps our brain healthy, I think you can look and say, so yes, this would predictably res result in, um, in more in a pandemic year that leads to a lot more um, mental, mental illness. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's no, the, the brain is, and is so complicated. If there was like one factor that we could take out of our lives or something like fix it, don't turn on the TV, do not turn on the TV. I, I wish there were, but it, Nobody is, uh, I mean, the things are so complicated that uh, there's no one thing you can, you can point to. And 
uh, yeah, I guess the pandemic has been this massive global experiment in many ways. Um, it, you know, it it seems like social interaction is much more important than we may have realized. A lot of people maybe have realized, even if it's, you know, if you're not meeting with friends every day, just having some baseline of that is important and it can really affect um, your mood in yes. interesting ways. Yes. Yeah. And it turns out that's one of the things that keeps us healthy. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's an, it's interesting thing because, you know, they're, they're like, I'm, for example, planning a, a long set of travels now that sort of the things are going sort of hitting the road again, but I know I'm going to be like alone for a, a large chunk of that. It's going to be, you know, and I, I'm already thinking about how can I mitigate, you know, around that because I realize after all these years of traveling that that can have an impact on, on how you feel. You just start feeling sluggish and your yeah. brain doesn't work properly. You know, you can't think straight and, and those kind of things that, that pop up. Yes. Is it, you know, in writing this book, did you discover something that you thought, okay, I thought I, I had a, an understanding of depression, but now I'm looking at it as in a different way. Yes, very much. Uh, I, first of all, the fact of all the, uh, the physical mood, uh, symptoms, you know, the sleeping, the eating, all, all that um, stuff, that was a surprise to me. I always thought of depression as mood, as being, you always, you feel sad, but I didn't see it going beyond that. Um, it really surprised me. Uh, well, frankly, the learning about suicide also surprised me. I had thought of suicide as a, you know, like a stage four, you know, like it's a progression of depression. Um, you know, partly, partly because my, my friend, uh, you know, she was, she had suicidality as such as, you know, prominent feature of her depression. Um, but it's not. Uh, suicide has it's a different uh, neurobiology. It has a different like different seasonality. Um, it has different risk factors, different inheritance. So it's it's some people are depressed and they have suicidality and that's bad. Other people have suicidality even without depression. Um, and some people are depressed and have you know no suicidality in them. So that that was a big surprise. Um, I was surprised by. So all, if you watch, when you watch TV, because we haven't yet managed to turn it off, um, you'll see a lot of commercials about, for antidepressants and all of the traditional antidepressants, um, they are all based on the, the one of the um, systems, the monoamine system in, in the, you know, that affects mood and stuff in the brain. Um, so I thought that depression would be, you know, something like, okay, you don't have enough let's say serotonin, or you don't have enough uh, adrenaline or something. Um, but it's not. They found out like about 40 years ago that those, that depression doesn't, isn't, doesn't come from a deficiency in those substances. Those substances definitely help the brain repair itself and help, it, help you get out, but it's not the key to depression. And the way that you see all those um, those different drugs, those you know, Prozac, uh, Zoloft, all that stuff. The fact that it's it's only peripherally related to depression that's that really surprised me. Interesting. So, it, I, I guess the brain being so complicated, it's not a matter of take a pill and just replace this chemical. Right. Right. And, and I, I also find interesting that that suicidality and, and depression are separate. I, I had yeah. 
thought that you would get so depressed that you know suicide would be the sort of the end of that maybe the the progression of a, a very deep depression but they're separate which is interesting to me I, I, yeah separately but uh there are some uh, factors in common and it, they overlap in that about 60% of the people who commit suicide do so, you know, in depression because they are depressed, but 40% don't. Um, either they, some of them have a different uh, mental illness, some of them have no mental illness whatsoever. Um, it's, it's strange. And like I said, the, the season's different. Um, suicides predominantly happen in the spring and summer which is, you know, where we are now. Um, depression, even uh, just regular depression, not seasonal affective disorder, happens mostly in the winter. Um, there's different, like I said, different inheritance. Uh, you have family lines with, the, with people who have committed suicide throughout. Other family lines, you know, where people are depressed and no suicides. It's just, it's just different. So how does someone know they're on a, a slope? So when, when does somebody seek help? And what does that help? look like you know it's it's yeah so i think somebody should seek help when they when they or their you know close loved ones notice that there's something different about them and they've been different you know like i said this so the doctors use a two-week time period um when when that happens or when these um when you have uh, like more than one symptom so you've got you're sad for no apparent reason and you're having trouble sleeping or you're having trouble eating. At that point, really, you should talk to somebody. And maybe it's nothing, maybe just a, you know, a bad day, a couple of bad days or a bad week and and nothing happens and you come you come back and it's okay. But I that's that's really hard to tell. So when is it, you know, really progressing? Um, if anybody, so one thing they taught us in the Air Forces is is if someone's just talking, someone's seems unusual, seems sad, uh, do ask them if they are feeling like, if they think they're gonna hurt themselves, which we always thought, oh my gosh, what if I give them the idea? No, like I said, apparently suicidality either exists or it does not exist. You're not gonna give it to somebody. So definitely ask and um, and if they indicate that, yeah, I did kind of feel like, you know, I should be here or I'd um, everyone would be better off if I'm gone, then you wanna take them into uh, to some, escort them to get to get some sort of care because that's really dangerous so and and it you know having known people who have been sort of in that situation it seems like they, there is a tendency for them to want to keep it secret so it, it, it's something they don't want to reveal i'd imagine in a military situation it would be even more because it could affect you know your job and, and so on yes um and so you know it I, I, you know, I feel like it might be difficult to engage these things just because they're trying to hide maybe feelings that they're not comfortable with, or, or maybe they, you know, are ashamed or for whatever reason that they're, they're sort of, they're trying to keep those feelings to themselves. Sometimes uh, it seems like everybody's different. Uh, so you're right. People are afraid. I don't know if it's only in the military or in other jobs where they think, Hey, if I go and tell somebody I'm really struggling, I'm having trouble is it gonna affect their job or a promotion or something? And they might be reluctant to do it uh, for that reason. But that's why there, there are some very private, um, I mean, again, hopefully clergy, hope the um, you know priests and clergymen and everything are getting some training about recognizing mental health issues. But um, you know, talking to a doctor, to a physician, that's 
usually that's a private communication. And so they, they shouldn't have to worry about their jobs with that. Um, with admitting to suicidality, that seems, I don't know, it seems really weird because uh, like with my friend Carolyn, she thought that suicidality was just completely normal. So you ask her, uh, you know, hey, do you feel like killing yourself? Oh yeah, I think I probably do that today. You know, it's on my list about here uh, as if it was something completely normal. Um, so I don't, I don't know if everybody hides or if it's that's just some people. Um, it's, well, I'd say uh, definitely if you think that somebody might be in a state like that, just ask. Like I said, you will not give them suicidality. That's not something you give somebody. Um, but if they are there and they're willing to say, you know, I've been considering it, then, then you, you know something. You, you can help get them some help at that point. And, you know, I, I guess when it comes to help is, is it see, you know, a, a psychiatrist, is it, there's, there are all these services now online where you can talk to a professional, you know, through, through yeah. zoom or something like that. Is that the step or are there, you know, smaller steps beforehand or something? Yeah, that's something they'd have to talk to a doctor. Um, I, I, you are correct in that. Uh, what I found as I was reading these papers is that even interacting with a person like online through zoom or on the phone, that is very helpful to uh, people. It's uh, to some, as long as they're having an interaction, um, it's just as good as meeting, uh, you know, face-to-face -face in, in a real setting. Um, so it's, that is definitely something that might be possible. Uh, but for what's best, I, I just don't know. I think it, it's, it's such an individual illness and then, you know, people's lives, do they, maybe they can't, leave because they have all these children they need to take care of, or they have to be at work or something. Um, so they might have these factors in their lives that they've got to keep in control um, the, while they get help. So I really couldn't speak to how um, how they can best get help. But I do think that uh, for what I read, it sounds like, like psychiatrists and psychologists, they are reaching out um, to embrace some more methods of, of um, working with people. Um, there's even some interactive computer programs that are apparently work for many people. And as, as someone with the cybersecurity background, I, I have a, most people uh, who are in the, you know, in that world like to break things apart, you know, like to break, yes. get, you know, get to the, why is this happening? Which, which I can, you know, see why you would write this, you know, the connection to the book makes sense. Is there something that you found or you said, okay, we're, we're kind of breaking this thing down and I can kind of see that maybe there's a solution to this or, or, or there's a brain mechanism or the, we're, we're, we're yeah. close or we're getting in the right direction. Yes, absolutely. And that was one of the things that really, you would think learning about depression would be depressing. It was actually very, for me, very hopeful and very empowering. And I hope that's what people would take away from the book. Um, it is, it seems like within the last uh, about 10, 15 years, there have just been such leaps and bounds in understanding uh, how the brain works in depression and in illness and in health. And it really does help. So especially the functional imaging, when they're looking at people, uh, the brains, what's going on in the brain of a person as they're experiencing life or as they're, you know, in a lab environment, of course. But 
and they're seeing what happens, it's really giving them a lot of insight. Um, they can also see what's happening as someone's going through psychotherapy or um, taking, uh, you know, uh, antidepressants and see what's changing. Um, what it meant was that when I was able to get to the, the fourth part of the book, which is about the treatments, in many cases, uh, I was able to uh, find the, the research that said, okay, this is what's, this is how this treatment is, um, is apparently actually helping people. So one of the things about depression, apparently, so, you know, with left side of the brain, right side of the brain, we're used to hearing about that in terms of creativity, but it turns out the right side of the brain, the right hemisphere has a lot of I, th I think of it as Pandora's box because that's where you've got the sadness, guilt, um, anger, just like a whole bunch of negative uh, emotions and constructs on the right side of the brain. Left side of the brain is more analytical, uh, more you know, uh, kind of even and controlling and working working out problems. So well, I mentioned that a lot of the like some of the connections are gone in people with depression. It seems to happen more on the left side. And so the right side, with the left side supposed to be controlling the right side, without that all that control, the right side's going, you know, kind of hyperactive, and spinning out these negative emotions. So some of the treatments actually um, they physically affect how the neurons are firing, like on the left side to say, okay, you know, let's bolster you, let's get the left side working better, or on the right side by saying, let's let's just kind of like damp you down. And so the fact that they they know this, they can see those different activity levels and they can do either, so uh, neurofeedback, training a person to use cues to do that for themselves or transcranial magnetic stimulation where they either, um, you know, use magnetism to either, you know, bolster the left side, you know, let's get the left side a little bit more active or kind of quiet the right side. Um, and they see a lot of effectiveness in that. Um, so that means that's that's, result of what they've learned just, you know, kind of recently. Um, there's also new treatments like uh, like this low-dose ketamine, which recently came out as a um, FDA-approved um, medication for depression. It's a rapid-acting antidepressant, and what it does is it regrows those connections. Like, it makes your brain just, like, grow for a, a short time, but, you know, restores a lot of the connections that were that were um, out of balance, that were gone. Um, and this is something, again, they know now because of the, um, the the modern technology, what they're able to see about what's going on as people are going through these sorts of um, treatments. And it's just very encouraging that they're actually learning about what makes depression and then how do we you know, undo that to make it go away. So there is some... Some hope, it seems like, in in learning about the physical aspect of depression, which I don't think we've yes. had access to for a very long time. Yes. And you know, I had read some things about psychedelics. This seems mm -hmm. to be uh, a, another area of research that's getting more popularity. Is that some is is that overblown or, or is that actually something that's happening? So the use um, it's of still, it, it's still new. It's still being tested. It's looking very promising, but all the studies are, you know, very small, like, uh, you know, 18 people. <laughs> so yeah. they really need to, um, you know, keep growing the base of knowledge there and just, and again, see what's happening, um, see what it actually does, but it's, it's very, it's encouraging um, from what, even the small studies are very encouraging in seeing what uh, what what psychedelics can do. So, I guess you know, sort of rounding it all up, um, without giving away the secrets of the book, um, 
What are some of the things that people can do to help bolster their the brain on a day-to-day basis or things that you can do to sort of keep your mental health, you know, that, that recovery system strong? Um, well, so like I said, there are certain things that help the brain grow. Exercise. Exercise helps the brain grow. Um, having a learning new things, interacting with people, just kind of expanding your horizons, you know, finding something new to do every day, even if you're kind of a shut in for reasons that are not your fault, <laughs> um, finding a new way to, to reach out and explore that those are beneficial things that actually make your brain grow. Diet is important. Um, everything in our body, basically it comes in through the diet. So if we're going to be, if we're short of some nutrient then that's necessary for the brain, then, you know, you're, you're not going to be um, not going to be at your your healthiest. Um, so I'd say those things are really the big ones. So if you can kind of expand your diet, expand your experiences, and um, and exercise, because you'll need to if you're expanding your diet. Um, that those are the things that basically keep us healthy. Also, uh, circadian rhythms very important. Uh, it's very hard for people who have to work night shifts or weird hours. That that eats away at your body's ability to cope. So if you can keep regular hours and, um, and do all those beneficial things, I think that that's, that's seems to be from what the, the scientists are saying, that seems to be the best ways to keep health. And I guess my last question would be, you know, after doing all of this research, is there something that you found out, you know, that you said, oh, uh, you know, I should change this, or maybe I, I, I was doing this and I, you know, it's not that healthy or, or something that, personally that that it's you know changing your habits um i think that so uh, i guess drinking alcohol um and i considered that but i decided okay no i'm not gonna change that <laughs> so um yeah so i guess there are some really it's i would say that uh kind of not being the the couch potato that i would really like to be um that's what that's the habit that I, I did decide to, okay, I really got to kick this. I got to, you know, get off the couch and um, get out, walk around, um, you know, walk the dog or something. Um, that's kind of the one that I had to leave behind. No, that's a, that's a good one. As, as someone who sits for a long part of the day, you know, I, I, I know that those hours where you, or that time where you can get moving is, is even more important. Yes. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I, I think it's a fascinating discussion. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, mental health and depression, it kind of goes in two ways. You know, <clears throat> people say, oh, you can just, just cheer up, right? And, and it's, it's, there's physical things happening in the brain that make that not possible, you know? Right. Um, so I, I think we're getting a better understanding of that. And at the same time, you know, we're seeing so many more people reporting depression and, and anxiety and these things. And I think that shows that maybe, you know, there are things that are affecting all of us that are causing this. It's not just a, oh, this person is just a depressive person. I, I, I think maybe it shows, you know, whether it's things in the modern world, maybe it's lack of exercise or other factors that are, you know, contributing all at once. Yes. And it's also just, hopefully it reflects people being more willing to talk about it. Um, surveys that they did back in like, you know, 2002, 2003, 
um, they showed that one in seven Americans is going to have a has a major depressive episode at least once in their life. So one in seven. Um, at if you look at who's currently depressed, it's like you know one in twelve people. So if you're looking around, if you're in a grocery store or an office or looking around, and there's more than twelve people in there, the odds are one of them is actually having a major depressive episode right then. It's very prevalent. It's just that people have been afraid to talk about it. Maybe they don't recognize it in themselves. Um, but it's it's always been out there. And I hope that people can actually acknowledge it and and get help um, before they're they're they end up spending miserable lives, whether or not they, you know, they lose their jobs or or their families or, you know, their or, you know, commit suicide I'm, I'm those are the some of the awful results of, of, of consequences of having depression um, but even just spending their lives in a you know miserably for whatever some you know chunk of months before they can finally recover they shouldn't have to do that um, it is a like you said it's a physical illness um, it's uh, something that can be treated and they it's very prevalent they got to understand they're not alone there's a lot of people out there with depression well, yeah, I think that's a, a, a good a good message. And I think learning about the mechanics of it, both for people who may have depression, can help sort of rationalize or, or, or sort of put yeah. it into a framework and say, okay, I'm not, this isn't who yeah. I am, you know, this, there are things going on. And for people who know, it seems like the odds are that most of us know someone who's probably depressed or gone through a, a depressive episode yes. and understanding more about how all of this is, functioning in the brain can help maybe elicit more sympathy, I think, or more under understanding at least. Yes. Well, thank you again. Um, I will leave links to the book in the, in the description uh, of the, of the podcast. And I appreciate the time. I think it's a topic that's well worth discussing and understanding. And um, so thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for being a guest on the podcast. And thank all of you for listening. I hope you got a lot out of it. And I appreciate you listening to the very end because that's where you are of this episode of the podcast. And if you're still listening, please do give five stars to the Fox Nomad podcast, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and Podbean. And all right, that's all I could list off the top of my head. But wherever you're listening to this, did I say Spotify? Oh yeah, we're on Spotify too. If you're listening any of those places or other places that I haven't even mentioned, make sure that you give five stars to the podcast. It really helps get the word out. We've had a really just amazing couple of episodes and it's only going to get better from here. So thank you very much for listening and supporting. But until the next episode, I hope you have a great rest of your day.